Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. If you're hearing this, then you're on the public feed, which means you'll get episodes a week after they come out and you'll hear advertisements. You can gain access to the subscriber feed by going to colemanhughes.org and becoming a supporter. This means you'll have access to episodes a week early, you'll never hear ads, and you'll get access to bonus Q&A episodes. You can also support me by liking and subscribing on YouTube and sharing the show with friends and family. As always, thank you so much for your support. Welcome to another episode of Conversations with Coleman. My guest today is Christopher Rufo. Christopher is a documentary filmmaker and a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. He's almost single-handedly led the national fight against critical race theory as it manifests in public schools and in workplaces. I haven't said much about this subject yet, so it was great to finally dive into it. Christopher and I talk about where critical race theory comes from. We talk about diversity training in the workplace. We talk about segregating people by race. We talk about various anti-critical race theory state laws and whether they're a good idea. We talk about what business owners and CEOs can do to fight critical race theory and more. So without further ado, Christopher Rufo. All right, Christopher Rufo, thanks so much for coming on my show. Good to be with you. We, uh, we did an event for Manhattan Institute many months ago, and I think that's where uh, we met virtually, at least. And I think probably the majority of, of my audience is going to be aware of, of you and your activism work in the past year or so. But just for the people who might not be aware of you, can you give a little, uh, a little history of your career? How, how did you come to be doing the work you do? Yeah, it's uh, kind of a, uh, it's a long kind of winding journey. But uh, when I was your age, graduating from college, I worked the next decade in producing and directing documentaries. So I produced a number of films. I produced four for PBS. I sold the rights to one film to Netflix. I uh, traveled all over the world and was doing a really kind of mishmash of projects. I, I spent a year documenting the Uyghurs in China. I did a short kind of film, my first one in Mongolia. And over the years, I kind of gotten a little bit older and then came back to the U.S. and then directed a final, my kind of last documentary about America's, uh, three of America's poorest cities. And this was my transition into thinking and working in social and political issues. And that led to releasing this film, working on homelessness, working on addiction, crime, poverty, other issues. Uh, And then I finally, in the last year, took another turn and started working on critical race theory, which has been, you know, in some ways connected to all of the other work that I've done. A lot of it is the same ideology that drives it, but is taking a a more explicit look at, at race, obviously. And then kind of by accident, in many ways, I found myself not just looking at it from the outside as an observer, but actually participating it in, in it in, in a more political way as, as an activist, I guess. I'm still not quite sure if, if that's how I would categorize myself, but I suppose it's fair. Yeah. So how did you get into thinking about critical race theory or worrying about critical race theory? You know, it started with a, a tip and I was working on issues around homelessness and progressive governance in Seattle, uh, where I was based at the time. And City of Seattle employees sent me kind of a a heads up that the city had been conducting a a training program for all of their new hires called 
uh, interrupting whiteness and internalized white superiority. And uh, I did a records request on this. I thought it was something that kind of had piqued my interest. Uh, I did a records request, received this trove of documents. And that story, I thought it was just going to be a one-off. I actually didn't even write a story about it. It was a bit outside of my, uh, my, my focus at that time. That story from the first time I reported on it, put it out on social media, uh, did a media cycle around it, led to an avalanche of new sources in the federal government, in America's biggest companies, in K-12 school districts around the country that have told me the same kind of training program that you've exposed at the city of Seattle is happening in my institution. And this is something that really hadn't been reported, hadn't been kind of revealed to the public. And really by accident, I found myself as the kind of go-to source for a lot of these training programs. Yeah. So there, there's a lot of interesting ways into this conversation. And I've spent a lot of time talking about critical race theory on this podcast. And, and so I think we should just start by defining our terms. And what's interesting about this is that two years ago, I was aware of critical race theory as a philosophy student at Columbia. And it, in my mind, critical race theory was something that you know, was born from Kimberly Crenshaw and many of the scholars in her circle in the late 70s and early 80s. And it was interesting to me as a philosophy, you know, it, it seemed obviously wrong, but it, it seemed wrong in a way that would only be of interest to someone who was really into academic philosophy. It didn't seem like the kind of thing that the, the wider culture would ever be interested in, in favor or against, you know, to the point where I, sometimes I would write about critical race theory and, and editors would tell me, well, you know, this is, this is a little bit too academic for, for a wider audience. But in the past year, the, the term has taken on a, a much wider meaning than I think it was originally intended. So it's probably smart to think of it as having two separate dictionary definitions one of which being the sort of original, somewhat esoteric academic philosophy that has a lot to do with relativism and the denial of objective truths, but with a, a racial inflection. Uh, and, and if you're interested in that, you can, you know, and I've spent a lot of time reading the sort of originators of the theory explain it sometimes in very overly complicated prose. But then there's the, the second definition, which has emerged in the past year, which is related to the first one in that we're talking about a, a philosophy that denies that objective truth is possible. Uh, it denies that race-neutral meritocracies or colorblind standards, that there could be such a society based on, on colorblind standards or race-neutral standards. And it, it alleges that America is systemically racist, but it also has come to stand in for sort of the perpetual longstanding race debate in America, right? How much of racial gaps between blacks and whites are the result of racism uh, as opposed to other factors? To what extent is your average white person racist? To what extent should white people feel guilty for the racist sins of, of the past and, and the original sin of slavery and so forth. These are debates we've been having for decades and, and critical race theory, in addition to encompassing this sort of academic philosophical idea, has also encompassed that wider debate. 
and I think you've, you know, from what I understand, you played a pretty big role in the, in that concept, you know, being right on the tip of people's tongues. So can you talk a little bit about how you understand that term and and how it's evolved? Yeah, I think you, you did a really good job at laying out the two sides of critical race theory, the Kind of, kind of law review article version of it that is uh, highly technical, very specific audience of, of kind of scholars and experts that originally developed the theory. And then as it's gone into practical politics, as it's gone into institutions, as it's gone into education, how does that manifest? And then how does the public perceive it? But maybe differ with you slightly. I, I would suggest that it's not that there are two separate definitions that run in parallel but that they're actually two sides of the same coin that is really embedded in the theory itself. If you look at the, the, the whole idea of a critical theory is that it, it's not oriented towards the telos of truth, it's oriented towards the telos of social change. So it's a, it's a theory that changes, it's a theory that has a historical property, but I think most importantly, it's a theory that has both, encompasses both the theory and the practice or the praxis. And that's when it moves in a dialectical way through society. And I think what we've seen is that the theory that was developed over, you know, roughly the, the, the late 1980s to kind of the mid 2010s, so uh, over a, a significant period of time, then started to actually be, become implemented in institutions. And the earliest examples I can find are from K-12 school districts in places like Portland, Oregon where they were implementing critical race theories, key concepts, systemic racism, uh, intersectionality, et cetera, into teacher training programs, into curricula. And then those are kind of the critical race applied principles. But I think what I've done is really expose the applied principles, the actual practice of the theory in very specific ways. One of the ways that I've gotten the word out, you know, created now you know, more than 500 million direct media impressions is through actually just releasing the documents and providing people a guide through them. But I don't think, and, and I think a lot of the people that are critical race theory supporters have tried to make this distinction. Well, you know, real critical race theory hasn't been tried or that's not real critical race theory. But I, I think that if you look at their early work, it's even, it's all, it's in the DNA of critical race theory. They always intended it for it, intended for it to be applied to places like education. Are very explicit about that. And even in their own branding, uh, at, a, at the symposium where Kimberly Crenshaw, the kind of coiner of the term critical race theory, she conducted a symposium, I think, 10, more than 10 years ago now. And she said, you know, we've been very successful. She was almost bragging that critical race theory, she said, is, can be used for race scholarship as interchangeably as Kleenex can be used for tissue. Um, so I think that the name is very significant. And we can talk about the name and the power of that name. But I, 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 would, I would contend at the outset that those two things really can't be separated. They're actually kind of conjoined in a way uh, from the beginning. Yeah, no, d- definitely critical race theory as a philosophy, it always contained a mandate to act, right? It's that, that's part of it is that the idea is you have a moral obligation to overturn the existing status quo because the existing status quo is not and could not possibly be colorblind or race neutral. It in fact, you know, benefits whites. So we have an, you know, an obligation to overturn that. That's the idea. So I definitely agree. It's not surprising that this translates into action um, inevitably. 
So, you know, a, a lot of places to go from here, but let's start with diversity trainings and what it makes sense to do, you know, what ideas it makes sense to prohibit in the context of employees in, in federal institutions, state institutions versus private institutions, it, at least the, the way it was written in, in a New York magazine, or, or was it the New Yorker? One of, one of, one of these articles um, about you basically said that, you know, Trump saw you on Fox news and, and the next day said, we, we've got to ban this critical race theory stuff from all federal, you know, all, all federal, anything the federal government has, it has its footprint on, including you know, private businesses that, that we are, that have contracts with us. Right. So is that, is that your understanding of how that went? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's about right. Yeah. I had been doing a series of stories over last summer on these training programs in the federal government. And some of them were, I mean, really egregious. The details were shocking to the point where even Kimberly Crenshaw in that New Yorker article admits that a lot of these training programs have really gone off the rails. She attempted to distance herself from them uh, to a certain degree. And then, of course, you know, the president was famously a big TV watcher. Uh, he saw the segment where I laid out uh, in, in one of Tucker Carlson's kind of model opening slots, laid out my research and then, you know, very simply said, you know, I, I call on the president to, to stop this, to, to ban these uh, programs. And, uh, Within three weeks of watching it, connecting with having his team connect with me, and then signing the executive order banning this it was about twenty-one days or so. That was the process. Yeah. So it's worth looking at one of these. I think the one that got the most play initially, which was the the Seattle Office of Civil Rights uh, document. I have it. I have it right in front of me. But it says you you've, uh, you obtained these documents from the from Seattle's segregated whites only trainings, which induct white employees into the cult of critical race theory. This is your writing on your on your website here. The trainings require white employees to examine their relation their quote relationships with white supremacy, racism, and whiteness. Explain how their families benefit economically from the system of white supremacy, even as it directly and violently harms black people. So that last sentence, that's the language of the source document you've got. So these are people whose salaries are paid for by, by public dollars, presumably forced as part of the job to be trained in, in this specific ideology of anti-bias and anti-racism training, which was, was a segregated training. It was only for whites. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, that's right. And we see that in a lot of places, especially for whatever reason around the city of Seattle and, and King County where Seattle resides. It's a fashionable practice now for government agencies. Even the King County Library here in the Seattle area was hosting these training sessions with separate signs on the windows even, you know, kind of the training session for whites, training sessions for uh, people of color. And actually deliberately putting people across the hall into separate rooms for them to, to grapple with this. And, and I think it, to me, it was a, a great irony that an office of civil rights, something that was originated from and was modeled on the civil rights legislation of the mid-1960s, would be trafficking in some pretty ugly concepts. And I think what I see as objectionable are really 
three concepts. One is race essentialism. The idea that you as an individual can be reduced to a racial essence or racial category or, 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 or a kind of racial metaphysics that's then loaded with connotations. So you see in some of those documents, they load negative connotations on this essential quality of whiteness, for example. The second would be collective guilt, as you, I think, mentioned at the very beginning, you know, holding people accountable for historical crimes and injustices committed by people who share common racial or ancestral characteristics. So the idea that you, know, you should be held guilty, not only for the sins of your father, but for the sins of people who may be in, only in some very kind of superficial way related to you in history. And then third, what I think of as a larger, a larger category of, of state-sanctioned racial discrimination, and especially state-sanctioned racial segregation, which in my reporting makes people deeply, makes people of all racial backgrounds deeply uncomfortable. And I think in practice, not only is it kind of wrong at, in an abstract way, but in practice actually, in many cases, serves to make people more suspicious and sensitive and paranoid and divided. And um, I think when I was able to show and reveal those three ideas or those three principles at play in a number of institutions, uh, people started to take notice. Um, I, I've talked before, I think, on this podcast about the fact that when I was 16 years old, I think, in, in 2012, I attended something called the People of Color Conference for, and at the time, I was probably a junior in high school or something. and it was pretty much copy and paste any one of the worst examples of, of these um, anti-bias trainings with collective guilt, you know, the notion, you know, if, if you're a black person who disagrees with anything being taught, well, that's just an example of internalized racism. You've internalized the, the, the racist narrative and are now parroting what your oppressors want you to say, which, which then makes it a, a, hermetically sealed ideology that actually cannot be punctured from the outside because any criticism by a white person is obviously a function of their racism. Any criticism by a person of color is a function of their internalized racism. And so there's just no conversation to be had. And obviously this was a, you know, in 2012, this was a big departure from any way I had heard race talked about in my, you know, very liberal uh, suburban New Jersey upbringing. And um, obviously it's gotten more and more prevalent since then. Uh, but th- there still is the the question, which I am genuinely curious about and open-minded about of how widespread this kind of thing is. Like if, if we were to poll all, all, everyone who works for a government institution in America and ask them specifically if they had been at any point taught about doctrines of collective guilt or, or, or so forth, how do you think that poll would come back? How, what percentage do you think would say yes? Well, you know, the short answer is we, we don't know. There's no way to kind of systematically find out that figure, but I can share some data, some insight from my own reporting that could shed light on it. You know, I have, I've collected now more than 5,000 sources around the country, a varying degree of kind of journalistic quality. You know, I can't report on all of them, but uh, I've, I've just, just me personally, uh, emailing me 
documents from within institutions. It's about 5,000 people. And for example, if you look at America's biggest companies, I now have the internal training documents for, I believe, 26 of the Fortune 100 companies that are promoting these principles uh, of collective guilt, of race essentialism, of either state or corporate sanction discrimination. Um, so, you know, that's more than a quarter. And I, I imagine that it's actually much, much higher than that. It just simply hasn't crossed my desk from leakers or whistleblowers. And then among school districts, you have, you know, now thousands of schools. It's embedded into the curriculum or teacher training programs at a statewide level in California, Oregon, Washington, Illinois, soon to be other states. That's covering, uh, I believe, you know, somewhere around 10 million school kids. And you have it now being endorsed explicitly by the NEA, which represents 3 million public school employees in 14, all 14,000 school districts in all 50 states. They've now committed to promoting critical race theory in every school district in the United States. So for a while, there was a kind of pushback where, you know, last year they said, well, you know, Chris Rufo has these horrible documents. They're really bad. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't support this. This is a departure from good critical race theory. But these are really kind of limited anecdotal stories that, that don't, uh, don't have any kind of broader uh, meaning. And I mean, that narrative has just collapsed. It's, it's untenable because these ideas are so ubiquitous. I mean, they're, they're really everywhere. And it's not just in kind of liberal enclaves and the Eastern seaboard or the West coast, you know, it's in Missouri, it's in Texas, it's in the kind of red States and red districts that, that you would not expect. Uh, but I think shows uh, just how widespread has become. So I want to get into what legal recourse there is in different contexts. So if you're a federal state or city worker and you attend you have to attend a racially segregated training, whether you're, you're black, white, Asian, or Hispanic. Uh, what legal recourse is there? Because, I mean, that seems to brush up very close against already existing laws against segregation, namely the, the famous, the very famous ones in, in 1964. And, and so, I mean, obviously that like the case of a training is is not a case where facilities are segregated in general it's a case where something there's segregated meetings on one particular day and i'm not sure the language of the civil rights act would necessarily cover such a thing but it's an it's an interesting edge case there for laws that already exist and certainly the spirit of it is just so you know it, it basically what you're saying when you segregate workers in, in a training like that is there's something important that has to be taught that the races must be separated in order to best learn. And I can't imagine what that thing could possibly be, especially when it comes to race relations. But, but just back to the legal question, is that something that wouldn't already be covered by existing laws? The legal question is, is very interesting. So the kind of assessment right now is we don't know. These are actually currently being litigated. So I've worked with a number of lawyers and law firms that are now starting to file suits. Uh, I think we filed four or five now, should be coming some more in the next few weeks, that are actually trying to test where do these things stand in relation to the law. And 
the segregated training programs, the attorneys in, in my network think that it's a clear violation of the Civil Rights Act. You can't have the federal government separating employees by race and and creating different training programs explicitly on race or including or excluding on the basis of race. They're pretty confident that those will be kind of stricken uh, from federal programs. The more interesting questions and the more nuanced questions come in the actual content of the curriculum. So teaching, you know, for example, that white identity is inherently oppressive. Uh, is it legal for a federal agency to be teaching employees of any racial background that a certain racial identity is inherently oppressive uh, or is inherently racist, et cetera? And these things could violate three areas of the law that are now being tested. Uh, one is a, a First Amendment right to conscience, a First Amendment right against, uh, to, 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 against compelled speech. So if you're, for example, in the city of Seattle's Office of Civil Rights Training, People actually had to stand up and say, you know, my name is so-and-so, uh, I am white, and I am complicit in white supremacy. Kind of these almost like cult-like repet repetitions of, of slogans and ideas. Uh, that likely could violate someone's right to conscience or, or, or right to be free of compelled speech. The second area is the simple 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause. Are, are these programs protecting people? Uh, e treating people equally under the law? Uh, is there equal treatment or equal protection? Uh, or is, is this implementation of these programs in a school district, for example, like one in, in suburban Illinois, suburban Chicago, that is now going through the courts, are, are, are these kind of stereotypes and scapegoating and essentialist categories actually rise to the level of treating people unequally under the law based on race? And then finally, there's the, the Civil Rights Act. So depending on the institution, there's a couple of different avenues in the Civil Rights Act, but do they constitute racial discrimination? Does a repeated pattern of programs that demean, degrade, or stereotype certain racial groups constitute illegal discrimination? And I think in a government workplace, there's even a, a lower standard, a standard that's reached more easily. And I will find out. I mean, I, I personally think that many of these programs will uh, be, be found to violate the law. Others won't. It's, it's, pretty, it's pretty tricky because you're taking an ideology that is being promoted by the state to employees or to school children, and you're trying to figure out what, what goes from just like teaching an ideology to actually the practice of teaching the ideology violating the law. Yeah, I want to get to that next because the issue of what can and can't be taught in schools is central here. Um, but before I get to that, what's to stop a private corporation from simply saying, my private company likes critical race theory. And as, as part of the deal working here, you have to go through a training that's in, in inflected with critical race theory. Yeah. I mean, in a general sense, there's nothing wrong with that. You can, preach critical race theory under your First Amendment right. If you're a private business owner, you can base your business on the principles of critical race theory. That's totally fine. You're, you're protected uh, to do that. But what you're not allowed to do is violate federal civil rights law. And it, in, in a kind of funny irony, conservatives traditionally were worried that 
a lot of the application of federal civil rights law, employment discrimination law, et cetera, would, would give the federal government too much say in how the workplaces are, are run, how the workplace is operated, what behavior and, and practices can be included or excluded in, in, in private workplaces. And now you have kind of a weird shift where I think more conservative people are, are now filing cases to say, well, this actually violates existing law. And you have more progressive people that are now taking the, well, these are private companies, they can do whatever they want position. So I think the, the takeaway there is, to me at least, is that federal civil rights law is enor- has an enormous influence on every institution in the country. And it stems from a, a legitimate injustice and discrimination in American society before 1964. And at the time, the, it, was, it was justified. They, they, they justified it uh, to basically say that we have to have a greater role to enforce equality, equal rights, equal protection within all of these institutions. But what we have now is now a really political battle where you have a political fight over the the meaning and the interpretation and the application of, of federal civil rights laws, including in private companies, which I think scrambles a lot of the pre-existing political categories that people were used to. Yeah. So let's get to the topic of what can and can't be taught in publicly funded schools. Now, obviously, you know, in America, you can raise money, build your own private school with a particular ideology, so long as it doesn't violate the Civil Rights Act and and various other laws. You can build a school around your religion. You can build a school around a certain kind of teaching ideology. And parents who value that can just go there. You know, you, you could have a critical race theory school that's privately funded and, you know, no one, given that it wasn't, for instance, racially segregated, you could teach Kimberly Crenshaw all day. The question is what you are and are not allowed to teach on, on America's dime. And, you know, I, I've long been a supporter of banning the teaching of, for instance, creationism in publicly funded science classes, given that it's, you know, not true and not the consensus of, of the science community. That's just one example. Obviously, you know, that this is another example you've used in your writings about this is if a public school teacher starts foaming at the mouth about the Jews or, or, you know, Nazism, they'd be out in a second, but in a broader, more principled way, most people wouldn't object to a law, a well-written law that says you can't teach Nazism. So in principle, it's, you know, I agree with you. It's a, it's a mistake to to simply frame this as a free speech issue, right? Like any law that could possibly be written banning ideas taught in public school is wrong, right? I, I don't think, you know, anyone who, who's pro-anti-creationism laws and, and so forth can't say that. So then the question is, what ideas do we want to ban? And, um, and so to that end, can you talk a little bit about the laws that have been passed in, in various states, uh, Tennessee and Texas? These, are, these have been called anti-CRT bills which, you know, reading the bill seems, it's, it's an understandable label, but there's, there's quite a lot in there that all, feels like it has very little to do with CRT and is just, you know, to take one example from the Tennessee bill here, 
the, one of the first things it says is, you know, you can't teach in a class the idea that one race or sex is inherently superior to another race or sex. Like that's someone, regardless of what you think about CRT, no one sane wants teachers teaching that, right? So there's a lot, a lot of stuff in these bills. So can you talk about how these bills came about and, and, and what their aim is? Yeah, I think what, what people are trying to figure out at the beginning of this year, as a lot of these courses, first in the federal government and then in schools became known, you know, I did a series of stories starting last December and going through the spring where I was showing applied critical race theory in public schools, uh, teaching a, a range of just like really outrageous and I think abusive practices with kids as young as pre-kindergarten. And so you have to try to figure out, well, what is your recourse in a democratic society for this? And I think that's an important context. So you have really three avenues for recourse, three avenues to, 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 to kind of address this problem. You have the executive. So President Trump passed an executive order at the federal level. Governor DeSantis issuing guidance and in, 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 at the executive level in Florida, working with his state board of education. You have the uh, judicial level, which we've talked about. So actually taking it to the courts. Does this violate state law? Does it violate federal law? Does it violate the Constitution? And then third, and I think most importantly, you have the state legislatures, which in every state in the country, state legislatures set the curriculum for the state kind of standards in, in K through 12 schools. Uh, and then they also direct significant amount of funding towards those schools. And so many state legislatures, I think we're now at eight state legislatures, and then another one, if you count nine, if you count the state boards of education, have come up with a bill style or, or, or a bill, a kind of format or a template to basically say, we want to abandon we want to, to prohibit these abusive practices. And the first one you mentioned, I think is important, uh, is want to ban uh, schools from promoting, advancing, or compelling students to believe that one race is inherently superior to another. And on one hand, it sounds crazy, right? It's like, well, no, nobody would want to be teaching that. But in fact, we have a lot of schools that are teaching that. They're not teaching it in, in a very simple way to say that you know, race X is superior to race Y. But they're certainly ascribing kind of traits to the race, a kind of, they're, they're ascribing specific traits and value judgments, negative and positive, to specific racial categories that are treated as essential in nature. So you have, for example, these, these kind of programs or modules or, or, or texts on whiteness that argue that, that this essence of whiteness that, is, that constitutes white people, culture, virtues, habits, laws, governing structures, et cetera, that is pervasive in society is inherently uh, racist, oppressive, evil. So you're ascribing a certain moral superiority or in this case, moral inferiority to a racial category. And you see a lot of that. I mean, it, it's, it's sophisticated. It's not really necessarily direct, but I think that's really what gets people's kind of ears pricking up and saying, wait a minute, what are they teaching? Is it, what is this based in? What is, the, what is the condition for this kind of belief? Why is it being taught in schools? So, so where are kids hearing this kind of thing? Would it be at, at an assembly or in, in like a social studies or English class or something in your research? Yeah, a, a lot of it is, you know, social studies classes. Uh, you know, I think that's probably 
the gen, general ed, social studies, et cetera. And, um, you know, there's a lot of specific examples, but one of the things that I think is you see over and over that's recurring is that you see intersectional hierarchy. And sometimes it's taught even in, at very young level, even in kind of grade school level, they're teaching Kimberly Crenshaw's intersectionality theory. I mean, explicitly, this is Kimberly Crenshaw. This is intersectionality theory. But then what they're doing is they're having kids, in some cases, fill out their intersectional identities. So listing out on a kind of school worksheet, uh, their race, sex, gender identity, sexual orientation, religion, household income, disability status, language, et cetera. And then actually ranking themselves and then kind of by necessity, comparing themselves to their, uh, their classmates on a hierarchy of oppressed, a hierarchy that where the axis is the oppressor and the oppressed. And um, so, so you have examples of this, how old were the kids? In, in, in one case, they were eight years old. Uh, so in one case in California and the Bay area, uh, they were actually having eight year olds do this. So very young. I mean, I have a 10 year old and, um, I, I can remember back to when he was eight, this would be kind of, I mean, seemingly, seemingly very strange to even make that decision. And, you know, so they do it with children. Um, they also do it with teachers at teacher training programs. That's another place that you see this. And, and some of them are very, you know, explicit in, 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 uh, every school, in the Springfield, Illinois school district, they were having a training where teachers were told to measure themselves on an oppression matrix to actually kind of break down their identity categories to figure out how they were being oppressive, whether they were suffering from covert white supremacy, and then atoning for those sins of, of again, identity traits that are, for the most part, fixed. You know, you can change your religion, you can learn a new language, but uh, the most important ones um, are, are, are more or less fixed. So I want to get into these laws a, li- a little bit more because I, I paid attention to the, um, the, the, the disagreement between uh, you and, and uh, some folks, some of whom I know at, at, the, at the New York Times, or not at the New York Times, but rather the New York Times op-ed, which uh, united my, my friends Thomas Chatterton Williams and Camille Foster with, with two others of different political persuasions and said that they were against these laws, despite certainly Camille and Thomas as well being highly critical of critical race theory. And you know, I, I read that, that op-ed and I agreed with it on the grounds that the, the language of, of the bill seemed to vaguely ban anything that could make people feel uncomfortable by race. But the, then I looked at the actual language of the bill and it seems like that there was a, you know, deliberate or not, there was a a, a real misinterpretation of, of the Tennessee bill that's pretty crucial here. And this is one of, I think this is a this is a very important thing to highlight here. So if there were a law that said you that that prohibited a teacher teaching anything that could possibly make, say, a white kid feel uncomfortable because of his race, that would be so overly broad and and ridiculous. Because just learning the facts of slavery could very plausibly make a white kid feel, for, for instance, guilt. Just learning the basic facts of the Holocaust could make a German kid feel guilt, um, depending on the kid's personality and how they, you know, how they experience learning those historical facts. 
But it seems the language of the law is much more sane than that, right? It's what, what it's saying here is you cannot teach that students should feel guilt or anguish or distress. But a teacher can't say white people should feel guilty about slavery, right? You can't get up in a class and say and and advocate that people of a particular race ought to feel guilt, which is very importantly different from saying you can't teach anything that could have the side effect of provoking guilt. And so I was, you know, it's just, you know, I read your response to that New York Times op-ed. But, but you didn't seem to clearly underline that misinterpretation, a pretty crucial misinterpretation was made. So I'm curious what you have to say about that. Yeah, I mean, you explained it very well. I mean, if, 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 the, if the bill was the former, if it said that, you know, anything that makes someone feel uncomfortable or guilty or ashamed, I mean... That could cover almost everything. And in a process of a good, rigorous education, you may feel all of those feelings, and it may be actually a really good thing in your development. You may feel confusion and sadness and guilt and shame and, and pride and wonder, but, but basing a law to, project, to prevent certain subjective feelings is, I mean, unworkable, it's, it's untenable, but, but I think as you point out, more importantly, it's also not in this law. And I think if you look at that piece, that was a factual error. They had a Harvard-educated lawyer uh, on the four op-ed as one of the four op-ed authors. Certainly, they had to know. I mean, it's pretty clear. You read it. I read it. It's very clear language. It's not confusing. You have four authors. You have a, 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 an attorney who specializes in these issues, as well as the editorial staff. I think what was happening is that they really just wanted to do anything to undermine these legislative efforts. But I think that while they made, a, I think, a huge and fatal error in this specific point in misrepresenting the, the actual law, there actually were a number of other broader problems with the piece. I think that kind of first and foremost, there is a, a sense that many of us in this world, in this world of, kind of, in, kind of intellectual activity and media, you know, we like pointing out problems. We like describing flaws. We like kind of issuing criticism. But when it comes to actually making decisions or exercising democratic political power, people then kind of the, the, the breath kind of drops and they get a bit more hesitant. But I think the number one flaw of the piece was that it made this, I think, really ridiculous argument that, you know, you shouldn't ban these through state legislation you should beat bad ideas in the free marketplace of ideas. You should essentially have better ideas win out over bad ideas. And, and it's, a, it's a concept that is just it's so naive. It's almost, it's almost astonishing uh, that it's held by anyone uh, because, as we know, public schools are not a free marketplace of ideas. Public schools are a state-run monopoly that are funded by taxpayers that are accountable to legislatures. And it is, it's not only the, within the power, but I think it's actually the central responsibility of state legislators to shape the state curriculum in a way that, adv that advances the best education and in a way that also reflects the values of voters. So you, I think the, the kind of rhetorical conception of that piece and much of the debate is, do you have CRT or do you ban CRT? 
But to me, that's really just a kind of epiphenomenal problem or question. And the, 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 the core question, the core problem is who controls public education? Do voters and taxpayers through the power of their elected representatives in the legislature, do they control the education system? Or do public school bureaucracies, public school administrators, public school unions, and public school departments of diversity, equity, and inclusion, do they get to control it outside any interference from legislators or taxpayers and voters? And I, I just like, I, I don't know how you could even make that argument. Do you want voters or bureaucrats? Do you want legislatures or school administrators? Who is the ultimate authority in our public education system? And, and I think the answer in a democratic society, if you want a democratic society, has to be the ultimate power resides with the general will of voters expressed through their elected representatives. Yeah. So a, a few things here. One is, you know, I, I know Thomas and Camille, at least, I don't know the other two authors or, or the editors of the piece, but as a character defense, they have never appear to me to be the type to deliberately misrepresent. Of course, I don't, I don't know the details of what went into that piece, but I would caution against ascribing to, to malice what could be explained by, by carelessness or something like that. They didn't change it though either. So that's, even- That's a very, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious I, 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 why I, they haven't. I, I definitely- it's, it's actually, it's a, it's a crucial mistake in the interpretation of the argument. And I don't even think they've addressed it. So, so yeah, well, I, 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 well, I 100% agree with you. I wouldn't attribute malice to the initial. But, but I, I'm curious, in your City Journal piece responding to this, I don't, I don't remember you sort of calling this specific thing out. I, there, there was another good piece by, by the American Enterprise Institute that just said, oh, look, look how they took this quote out of context and ma- made it seem like something very importantly different, which was very useful because then I looked at, at the law and, realize, holy shit, they're right. Um, yes. I think Max Eden at AEI, he wrote yeah. a piece. Some other mm-hmm. folks wrote a piece. I did mention it on Twitter okay. as a kind of, you know, this is a clear misrepresentation of the law. Um, it wasn't as germane to my main point in my, in my, in my fuller city journal piece, but mm. I, I think it does. I mean, a, a, a lot of this is, you know, the, it, it's really not say, hey, we, we ascribe a kind of character, pro, a character judgment, which I, which I, I agree shouldn't be done uh, when there could be another explanation. But certainly, you know, I, I think it's a, a, a factual error, right? And then mm-hmm. a, as a writer, then you, what you want to do if you make a factual error, I've done it, of course, is you want to issue a correction. You want to, you want to take responsibility for it and change it in the piece so that when people go back to it, they have better information. And to, to my knowledge, they haven't done that. So, so let's get to the second part of this, which is, you know, where does it make sense to, to fight this battle? You know, I, I'm convinced critical race theory is, is absolutely the wrong way to deal with the, the real problem of racial bias and the, the continuing struggle to live as a multiracial nation with ugly stains on its history, right? This is a genuine challenge for all Americans and we need good ideas to lead the way here. And, and critical race theory is absolutely the wrong path. It's against everything, all of the beautiful and humanistic and deeply ethical ideas of the civil rights movement and, and Martin Luther King. You know, it, it came about as a conscious rejection of the civil rights vision and, uh, and of civil rights rhetoric. 
know, critical race theorists will, will sometimes pay some homage to folks like Martin Luther King, but they will just as often say, you know, the reason we built this theory was because civil rights was insufficient. It was inadequate and in, in wrong in important ways. And, and, and I fundamentally disagree with that. So I, I want to push back a little bit though on this, this notion that it's, it's naive to think of this uh, as, you know, you know, to, to really talk about winning the, about fighting this in the marketplace of ideas. Because, you know, no doubt everything that happens in, in school matters. But when we're talking about a culture war, you, you, you know, one has to be aware that a lot of the fight is taking place in the culture and, out, and outside of schools, arguably the majority. You know, when I think of the analogy to say creationism and evolution, you know, how many people in the, in the fullness of their lives were persuaded one way or the other, whether they're atheists, you know, Sam Harris, Dawkins style atheists or, or creationists, how many were persuaded in public school versus YouTube? And, and today you, you add YouTube, TikTok, all the places where people are going to actually think about ideas that they care about, thinking in private, changing their minds in, in private. You know, broadly speaking, I think there is a tendency to put too much weight on the, the ability to change the culture in these, in these legal. Because it's one of the places people feel they can most control, right? You can pass a bill and it, it, it seems to be tangible evidence of progress, whereas the culture war, pretty much each person is, feels very powerless. Um, even, even folks like me with a platform, I, I can influence who, who I can influence, but the culture is this diffuse thing and um, it seems to be moving in a direction I don't like and it's very scary and it's very hard to control. And to pass a law, it feels like this tangible thing. And it is in some sense an, an indicator of progress. But then there's just this sea of cultural change that is happening in the marketplace of ideas that in the fullness of time is, seems to me is going to determine much more than, than, than any, any, any legal win, which of course is not to say you don't go for the legal stuff. It, it's simply to have a sort of correct calibration of where the majority of the fight is going to be fought and in, in the fullness of time won. So d- does that make sense to you at all? Do you, do you, do you see it differently? Yeah, it it does make sense. I think that you have to be uh, kind of domain specific. So if you're talking about the K through 12 school curriculum, which I think is really important, it's really a, a very important battlefield, let's say you have to win that through legislation or at the school board level or the state level in the actual legislature, the state houses. So, you know, you have to recognize that for that each domain is different. The strategy is different. So in a government agency or a public school, you have to do it through legislation. It's not a free marketplace of ideas. But simultaneously, if you look at the broader culture, of course, that is in some sense a marketplace of ideas. I'm not sure it works exactly like a marketplace, the kind of in how it prices ideas and how ideas gain dominance. I think the deck can be stacked in, in a way through a kind of cartel behavior of different organizations and groups and that are promoting specific ideologies. But yeah, you need to have, you need to win in the culture, you need to win in the institutions. But I think actually 
differently than you do is I actually think we don't pay enough attention to the actual legalistic and legislative and judicial and institutional fights. And I think people like me, people who are kind of advancing a concert, more conservative vision, have to take that much more seriously because it's not just, okay, well, what's in you know Johnny's uh, homework in third grade? But if you look at the whole landscape of how ideas get generated in our country, and you actually say, well, where is the money coming from? What is the source of power? How does the actual structure work? You find that these, in many cases, these ideologies, including critical race theory, are directly funded or subsidized by the federal government, state governments, et cetera. So this happens in a lot of ways. So you have public universities, right? So the woman who developed the concept of spirit murder, the idea that white-led institutions systematically, quote, spirit murder black and brown children, who's very influential, who's consulted with school districts around the country. She's an employee of a public university. So that idea, spirit murder, is directly funded by Georgia state taxpayers. But you also have the broader university system that is being subsidized through student loans, through trillions of dollars in off-market subsidies to have the kind of departments of anti-racism, to have the kind of 100 to 1 social science departments led by self-described radicals and Marxists in academia. And then you have then a huge bureaucracy in public schools, in public sector unions that receive indirectly public funds. You have the, the, the organizational and the institutional power structure that is funded in many cases directly by taxpayers, research grants, et cetera as I've laid out. So when we say, well, we just have to win in this diffuse marketplace of ideas, you have to realize that it's not necessarily a diffuse, amorphous, kind of inexplicable market. The actual market is, is, is shaped by ideological cartels that are using public funding to promote their ideas and in many cases, flooding the market, right? So if you're a K through 12 school administrator, you wanna look for a school curricula, you're looking at a market that's been flooded by universities, by, by uh, other public school bureaucracies, et cetera, to like probably 100 to 1 that are much more progressive versus conservative in nature, using, again, public money to flood the market with what I think are bad ideas. And then I think conservatives find themselves, well, we're going to have to make a movie about Ayn Rand or whatever, <laughs> some, some, dumb, uh, some dumb kind of cultural strategy that I think is really uh, ignorant of, of the actual state of play, the actual state of cultural power and where it comes from. Mm. So with regard to these laws, you know, I, I find myself thinking of the analogy to Marxism, for instance. So if, if a teacher at a publicly funded institution begins, you know, you know, gets on his or her soapbox and starts teaching my kids who go to you know, public school that, all the world is a class struggle and the proletariat will eventually rise and so on and so forth. What recourse is there for that teacher to be fired, right? Given that they're not, if they're a history teacher, they're not teaching history facts. They're, they're just inculcating kids with their own private worldview. They might as well be, be telling me that the one true God is Yahweh. It's just not, if I want to teach my kids that at home, I can. And, and my mom did. My, my mother was a Marxist and, and taught me a lot of Marxist stuff at, at home, which is, you know, appropriate given if that's, if that's your values. 
So, so what recourse was there legally? Is it just that everyone would come down on this teacher and there's no specific state law or, or are there laws in many states banning specific ideas analogous to, to the ones that have been passed? There, there are not, to my knowledge. It's, this is kind of a new area of law, new kind of set of restrictions. A lot of it is cultural enforcement, right, or, or, or norms-based enforcement within those institutions. But a, a lot of it is, you know, that said, there are mechanisms to fire teachers. So if a teacher was kind of, you know, soapboxing on Marxism, the school could say, hey, this is outside of our, our mandated curriculum. This isn't, you're not following the, the guidance or the instruction or the the, the material that we've created. And I've seen even a recent case where a teacher was, you know, really hardcore indoctrinating kids to a specific political viewpoint and then telling students, there is no debate. There is no other side of this argument. This is the truth. You cannot have any other disagreement with this. I think this student was in, this teacher was in Tennessee. And after a number of warnings where the administrator said, hey, you have to have an open debate in your classroom. You can't just be pushing your opinion. You have to actually incorporate the opinions of students. This teacher was fired. So there is recourse. I think it's difficult in many cases because of it's hard to fire public school teachers. They have a form of tenure, but it's, it's difficult bureaucratically kind of process wise, but it's not impossible. So, so this will be my last question. Suppose someone comes to you and says, well, I work at such and such a company and a lot of us here are concerned about the critical race theory, anti-bias indoctrination sessions that are being pushed on us. And, or let's say I run the company or something and I want to get rid of it and I want to replace it with something that is in the same shape, that fills the same need, right? Because we need to have some kind of diversity training, but I don't want it to be the Robin D'Angelo cast. Can you help me? Can you recommend something to me? Can you give me a resource? What would you say to such a person? Yeah, I, I would say, you know, and I've actually had this exact scenario. Some folks and in, in some very big companies c- coming to me through through my network saying, hey, we, are, we, ha- we feel some pressure to do something. We want to do something good, but we don't want to get caught in the, uh, yeah, Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo kind of vortex of these never-ending struggle sessions. And there are some folks, I know that, you know, Chloe Valdery, there's another woman named Dina McMillan. There's another professor um, that does kind of organizational training programs. There's a very small, unfortunately, network of people that are starting these companies that see an opportunity to, to create something uh, of, I guess you could call it diversity training, but, but actually doing something that brings people together, that that appeals to their common values, their common humanity, and that presents a, a, a multifaceted program that welcomes debate, that welcomes diversity perspective, that actually does try to get people talking to one another. Because, you know, I, I think one of the mistakes or one of the misconceptions, rather, is that conservatives or, or even me personally don't want to talk about these issues. We just want to shut down conversation. Whereas I think actually conversation is really important. And Meeting people, you know, I've, I, as a documentary filmmaker, I traveled to dozens and dozens of countries around the world. I'm curious about people, curious about different cultures, curious about uh, different belief systems. And I think those conversations are valuable, but they have to be structured in a way that is actually that promotes at, at heart some kind of unifying principle. 
So what I would say to that person is there's a few people, I imagine they're all really busy now, but I think you'll see in the next few years in the kind of short and medium term, you're going to see a lot of people trying to create alternatives. You know, that's not, that's not what I do. It's not my thing, but I, I think it's going to be a really valuable service that people provide to give people who want to do something an off-ramp from this kind of stale process. And what I would say too, in, in, in closing is that I've looked at now hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of documents from all types of organizations all over the country. And what I think is really tragic about them is that they are so reductive. They're uh, like, they're all, as, I, as I'm processing these materials to do some additional reporting, it's like they might as well have been created by the same person. They traffic in the same, you know, 10 ideas derived from critical race theory put into practice. Uh, there's no creativity. It's really a kind of rote dogma. It's, a, it's an orthodoxy. And if you've seen one of these trainings, you've kind of seen them all. And, and you know, my hope would be that uh, people can see this not only as a problem, but an opportunity. And, uh, and I would love to see more folks coming up with better ideas to replace it, especially in places uh, like the corporate world. All right. Well, Christopher Rufo, on that note, it's been a great conversation. I think people will get a lot out of this. And before I let you go, can you direct my audience to where they can follow you, find your work and, and support it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm on Twitter at Real Chris Rufo. That's a good place to get all of the latest updates on the stuff that I'm doing. And then I also have um, all of my articles and films and videos at ChristopherRufo.com. That's just ChristopherRufo.com. Uh, you can also support my work there. Have a nice community of uh, small patrons. Cool. All right. Till next time. Thank you. If you appreciate the work I do, the best ways to support me are to subscribe directly through my website, colemanhughes.org, and to subscribe to my YouTube channel so you'll never miss my new content. As always, thanks for your support.